To talk or not to talk, that is the question. You're listening to the Bricks and Water podcast. Bricks and Water podcast, well, that's a podcast about property. If you're interested in property, if you're buying, selling, renting or investing in property, then I'm sure in the next 40 minutes or so, we'll have something that floats your boat and lights your candle. To talk or not to talk. This week's show is all about an interview with Davy Hutton. But before we talk about that, let's talk about whether or not you want to talk or not to talk when you're in the sauna. A bit left field, I grant you. But let me set the scene. At the moment, I'm trying to get into my swimming. So what I'm doing is I'm going down to the swimming baths uh, six o'clock in the morning, trying to crack out 15 minutes every every day or so but on a Saturday what I tend to do is I'll do my swimming and then I'll get into the sauna so picture the scene I'm there in the sauna minding my own business this bloke comes in and he wants to talk I cannot be arsed all I want to do is just sit there and do nothing but this guy incessantly just chattering away wants to engage me in conversation and I'm just thinking, oh, I just cannot, cannot be bothered. So instead of it being somewhat rude, I take him on. Um, But what I should have maybe done was do what the next guy who came in to the sauna, the chattering man next to me, turned around to him and says, got a good heat in the sauna this evening, to which the guy just grunts. That's what I should have done. I should have just grunted. To talk or not to talk? What do you do? I tell you who does like to talk, and that's Davy Hutton. Davy Hutton, we've got an interview on with him, and we're just going to put that on. Davy Hutton is your man behind Quicksale. You will have heard, if you listen to Radio Clyde, you will have heard him with his, his catchphrase, we talk about many things, how he started, what scares him, the problems in the, in the current housing market, we touch on that, and also motivation. It does go on a bit, this interview, probably 40, 45 minutes, but I tell you what, stay with it because there's some great, great stuff in there. Let me know how you get on. Here's the interview now. Let me take you back to 2009 um, when you and I were sitting around a table with Ross Harper, um, Gordon Mackay and Ian Williamson and I was, I think, the solicitor that was brought in to deal with an idea that all four of you had as far as an auction was concerned and we ran an auction, I think, three or four months after that. What happened after that? Well... It was actually 2008, I think. Was it? Right. Yeah, it was late, so it was post-crash. Post um, it, it was certainly post-Gordon dying, so I'm pretty sure he wasn't at the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, could do many things, but maybe that wasn't possibly one of the things he could do. <laughs> um, it, was, uh, it was Gordon's idea, 
um, Snows as he was known to all of us. Yeah. Um, and and Snows was a, a, a property developer looking for different things to do. And then when he died, um, Ian Williamson um, approached me to say, would you would you come and look at fronting this? Yeah. Like he is from Ivy Property. Yes. We've, we've had yeah. him on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he's very knowledgeable, um, good guy. But Snod was the was the front for this organisation, mm-hmm. and the uh, the way in theory that it was going to work. Um, Snod would front the organisation. Um, Steve Begley was doing the, the mortgage consultancy stuff. He yeah. kind of felt his, his repossessions were on the rise. He would be able to go to the to the banks and say, "Give us your repossessions to sell." Mm-hmm. Then the auction company would sell them, and they would sell them using the, the database of Begley Brown's uh, financial um, uh, clients and Ian Williams's estate agency expertise. So yeah. that, that was the kind of so everybody bought a little bit to the party. Yes. Unfortunately, it's not. It's not just as simple as that, mm. because you can't just really phone up the girl at the mortgage um, uh, department of Royal Bank of Scotland and say, "Give me your repossessions." Uh-huh. You uh, need to know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. Well, I mean, with, with RBS, it comes through structured lending services, which are in, in London somewhere and totally uh-huh. remote from from everything else. Um, so, in theory, the thing worked. In practice, it, it didn't work at all. Mm. Um, I asked Ross Harper to get involved in it um, because, it's, to be honest, I didn't really want to go back to the, the day-to-day running of a, of a business. What were you doing at that stage? Um, were you doing your property development? I, I was just doing, probably developing of kind of like houses, castles, and windmill type stuff. Was the, the just I, the norm then? <laughs> I did the <laughs> I did projects that I liked doing. Right. I just finished the restoration of Law Castle and West Cobride, which I still got. Okay. Um, my son was was a year old at this point, and I just I just wanted some time to kind of you know, be with him up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I've always been not just running a, a job; I was always running two jobs, three jobs, and I got a little bit burnt out. But to ask Ross Harper to come and get involved, and it was very early on in the, the kind of the, the credit crunch time. And a meeting with Ross and David Lloyd. Um, and uh, he said, what do you think's happening in the property market? What's going to happen with it? Yeah. And I said, it's going to lose 30%. He didn't think so. It went that way, didn't it? Well, we debated that, that mm-hmm. through, and, and in the course of that conversation, um, I, I watched the the, the, the colour change in Ross's face because he, he knew from, the, from just the two of us chewing the fat that what I was saying was right, and, and in a lot of ways, that was me articulating my thoughts because I've never really had the conversation with anybody, and I needed somebody like Ross to be able to bounce things bounce, off. To bounce yeah. off. And Ross, Ross very clever, uh, picks up on things very quickly. Um, but Ross, unlike me, had a lot of property and a lot of finance on a lot of property. No wonder the colour was draining out of <laughs> his face. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> um, I had much less amount of property, yep. but a lot less debt. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was probably going to lose 30% of my capital. Yes. Uh, but if you're going to lose the 30% of the capital, which is effectively the equity in the, in the property, mm-hmm. if the bank's got 70% and you've got 30% and the market goes down 30%, it's you that's losing your money, not them. Absolutely. Uh, and yep. that's what happened with the, the vast amount of the, of, the, of the property market. So 
at that time, if you remember back, people were talking daily on the news about you know the credit crunch and AAA ratings and mm. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and yep. all this kind of stuff in the States. It was like the Olympics for three years. Well, you could put the TV on and yeah. all you got was the Olympics. But for the first year of these three years, yeah. nobody knew what they were talking about because it hadn't hit us here. It was all mm-hmm. playing out in the States. Yep. Um, and nobody really knew what it was... Um, what it was talking about, but if you were bright at all, you know that it's uh, if it's the lead item on the news day after day after day, you know it's some fairly serious shit that's uh-huh, going on. Uh-huh. Um, so I'd gone to uh, I'd gone to a property conference that was uh, organised by Jones Lang Sal in Glasgow, and they, they kind of had the the great and the good of the property industry there, mm-hmm. uh, and I was given a ticket by friend of mine who, who worked in there, somebody called off and he gave me a ticket. Yeah. I was duly told to go and sit down and not see anything. Like your suit and tie on. Yeah, so I pretend, pretend I wasn't there. Please don't <laughs> speak, Davy. <laughs> so, so they brought in this economist who basically said, uh, this is very early in 2008, um, this situation isn't as bad as the last recession in London. Right. The 1990s. Uh-huh. Um, and I listened to it and I listened to it and I listened to it and as I'm listening to it my, my right arm is kind of going up going up <laughs> gotta and ask, gotta <laughs> ask a question I can, I can feel Big Scott sitting on the side of me kind of going <laughs> down um, and so listen I'm, I'm maybe a little bit out of my depth here but are, are you seriously saying that this recession that we're now looking at isn't as bad as 1990 London mm-hmm. and the economist had said well 1990 the term negative equity was commonplace I've yet to hear it this time round um, cut a long story short, they had a vote in the room and my view on it was voted down 4 to 1, 5 to 1, something like that. And your view was market is going to recorrect this, this 30%. Is a, this is a calamity that, yep. that we're in. Yep. In 1990 you had a price correction in London which kind of rippled out around the rest mm-hmm, of the country mm-hmm. and this time round you've got a global situation because of how everything's moved on with the internet and, um, and, and whatnot. And they just couldn't see it. Well, didn't want to see it. Mm-hmm. I think it would be the would be a, 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 a they all for all of the great and good of the of the, the property market. They all mm-hmm. work for somebody, so their jobs are dependent on the property market continuing yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. evolve. But um, at that time, I think what I actually said on on the day was in 1990 this price correction happened, but I don't remember where Stern's going burst. And that had happened at that point of, of, of this meeting. Mm-hmm. So I got outvoted in the room four to one. Uh, that was on the Thursday. Um, I think on the Sunday, Lehman Brothers went bust. Oh, yeah. Uh, on the Monday, EIG went, or you know, very very soon after. Uh-huh. It, by the Tuesday, I'd become this economics expert. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Preston, <laughs> eat your heart out. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> just a just a fluke situation, but but it interested me. Yeah. It interested me how one thing knocks on to the to the other. Mm-hmm. Most people have got a brain that says uh, the property market's going to drop a bit and that's the end of the thinking. Mm. But if you start to kind of if you've got a brain that doesn't stop, well what happens then? And what happens after that? And what happens after that? And what happens after that? Mm. Type, type thing. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie The uh, the Big Short the, 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 about the, the, the financial crisis and the, the, the guys that were 
basically making money out of the thing. Yeah. And the, 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 the triple A ratings and uh -huh. how they were all coming about and Standards and Poor were putting triple A ratings onto crap mortgages because they knew if they didn't they were going to lose the business to, to Moody's and you know, mm. the, the whole nice. thing was just, yeah, was it corrupt? At the top of the tree, it was totally corrupt. At the bottom of the tree, people are processors. That's that's what they're doing. Um, but it comes back to the where we started about the zero point one percent of the population with ninety percent of the wealth. Yeah. Um, all this business that we're now talking about is how you inflate that that ten percent remaining remaining capital to make it look like like a hundred percent. That's that's what that's all mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting times that we live in. I mean, you know, when Tony Blair left office, um, I think the national debt was 500 billion. It took us 300 years to get to 500 billion. And in three years under Gordon Brown, we took it to 1.1 trillion. So, you know, 300 years makes 500 billion. Three years makes 600 billion. And we're now 1.8 trillion. And the interesting thing is that nobody talks about it. Mm -hmm. They'll talk about the property market, they'll talk about the Bank of England rates, they'll talk about the you know the value of the pound of the stock market index. Nobody talks about the fact that we're 1.8 trillion in debt. Uh -huh. And we've sold the family silver. Correct. There's nothing else to sell. Because all we had was 10% of the finance left. Yeah, yeah. So back 2008, 2009, you had this great idea. On paper it seemed to work, but actually it, it didn't work because what you couldn't get the properties you couldn't um, unlock the banks to give you the properties. You couldn't unlock the banks to give them uh, to get the properties. That was that was the first problem. Yeah. Um, at that time, we were we were operating through the GSPC, mm -hmm. um, and the GSPC is a um, a difficult organisation to, to work with because you know they have a a property department, but essentially each one of the lawyers has his input into, into yeah. how that works. Yeah. You've got an organisation where the the tail really wags the dog. Um, and they were very difficult to deal with, uh, and it was very um, confining for us. So, mm -hmm. so we decided to, to to kind of break away from that and, mm. and basically deal in um, distressed property in whatever format it came. Okay. Now, at that particular time, people couldn't sell the properties, um, so the only market a lot of them had was for the investment market, so mm. people would buy on a rental yield rather than what the house was worth. Yeah. Which meant, you know, you could, you could say that a flat was worth £80,000, but if it rented out for £450 a month, that's £5,400 a year, and if somebody wanted to make 10% of the money, it was worth fifty-four grand. So overnight, that flat dropped from eighty grand to fifty-four grand. Yeah. But fifty-four grand was an arithmetic equation. Eighty grand was a... Pie in the sky. Absolutely. worth that. Yeah. Now, uh, to my mind, all property should be valued somewhere along the line based on its potential rental, rental yield. yield. Yeah. Now if you take my, my own property, it's probably valued at six hundred thousand. If I was going to rent it out it's worth two and a half thousand pounds a month, which is thirty grand a year. Ten percent on your money means my house is worth three hundred grand, not six hundred grand. Mm -hmm. Potentially that's how much that end of the market is still overvalued. Now, okay. you then go into a different debate as to how much you factor in for desirability of area and schools and, 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 and mm. whatnot. Mm -hmm. But in terms of arithmetic equations, that's how the thing should work. Um, the bottom end of the, the market just now is very difficult because well, nobody can get a mortgage. Um, the, the first time buyer um, needs to get their, their deposit, so the government bring out a help to buy scheme which gives them their deposit money but insists that they buy a new build property. 
when you hear this, I was told to help to buy, you don't actually get, you know you get your 25%, yes. right? You don't get your 25% until after completion. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the reason why you would want to do it is because you get a quarter from the government, but you actually don't get that yeah. until yeah. after, and so it's, it's, it's madness. But what the help to buy scheme is there to do is to, to boost the construction industry. If they wanted to, to boost the housing market, what they should do is go to the banks and say every first-time buyer should be given a guaranteed 100% mortgage. Uh -huh. That's how you with solve a, the With a mortgage indemnity insurance policy. Yes. At whatever level that mortgage is, if somebody mm -hmm. wants to borrow 20 grand, mm -hmm. then they get their 20 grand mortgage. But yeah. right now, and you'll know better than me, you can't physically get a mortgage below kind of 45 grand level. Um, no, because right. it costs the bank more to administer it than, than mm -hmm. they make off it at that yeah. time. Yeah. So, you know, as, as our kids grow up and want to buy their first property, I would rather see my son start off on a 40 grand property than go down the help to buy scheme and buy a 140 grand property mm -hmm. in the ferry village is going to lose money before it starts. Absolutely. You put your first time buyer into a property that puts them immediately into equity, how do they become the second time buyer? But I think there's this mentality of the young that they want to miss out those first three steps because they've been sold the dream and they think, well, why can't I have the dream? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's exactly the same if you go to the 17-year-old kid passing their driving licence now. Yeah. They step straight into a brand new car. Uh-huh. Well, you, you and I, that's a cherry. Exactly. 800 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> Holes and in I, the floor. I'm Morris Minor. I didn't realise I was that much older than you. <laughs> but, the, uh, but if you buy a two grand banger, at the end of a year, you've still got a two grand banger. Mm. If you've got a £200 lease deal, you've put out £2,400 at the end of the year and you get nothing uh -huh. for it. Uh -huh. But when was the last time you saw a car that had a door or a wing that came from a scrappy? You've clearly not seen my car. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand entirely. You just don't see it anymore. And it's exactly the same with property. If you say to a young person, you can have this brand spanking new place in Trendy Ferry Village, uh -huh. why do you want a, a red sandstone tenement in Paisley? Yeah. Well, what the reason that you should want it is because it's 40 grand and not 140 grand. Mm -hmm. But you can't get the mortgage on the 40 grand anyway. And even if you did have the deposit for it, you can't get a mortgage from the bank. Yeah. So that whole end of the society of, of the, the property market it descends into, into a pit where nobody can buy it other than a trade person. Mm -hmm. So you get the situation where a home report might come in for that property at £60,000. Yeah. But the only person that can buy it is at £40,000, if you, if you follow the logic, mm -hmm. because there is no retail end user for it. So if you imagine it like the, uh, the kind of glasses guide for cars, where you'd have full retail, you'd have a, a trade value and a bottom yeah, book. Three of them, yeah. The only thing that you've got for these properties is trade value and bottom book. Uh -huh. Trade value being based around rental yield, uh, bottom book being uh, is only for cash buyers. Yes, yeah. Um, and, and, and that end of the market is just getting totally destroyed. So what happens with these properties is they, they become rental only, and on a lot of occasions, it was the neighbourhood. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a, um, a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. You're, you're, just, you're in a race to the bottom in a lot of these mm -hmm. areas. You can never get back. So you think one solution would potentially be for the banks then to agree, you know what, we're not overly concerned about the value of the property, we just want to make sure that we can give a mortgage for properties that are 40, 50, 60,000 pounds. Yeah, well, I mean, however the government backed that, that's the only way, um, I mean, 
propping up the construction industry with the help device, even if it's a short term project. Mm -hmm. If you put a first time buyer into a property that they can't then sell, your first time buyer can't become the second time buyer, they can't move. Yeah. Now, the property market should exist and function exactly like the Monopoly board. You get 100% mortgage, you buy Old Kent Road, the person that's in Old Kent Road moves to Pentonville. Mm -hmm. On a 95% mortgage, the person from Pentonville moves to Vine Street and Vine Street moves to yeah. Marlborough and whatever. Yeah, yeah. And as you get round the block, the mortgage percentage levels come down. But if you don't start it at Old Ken Road, it, it, the ripple doesn't happen. <laughs> it, no. it just stops. Uh -huh. And that's effectively where, where you are now. Um, the Help Device Scheme does nothing for the overall property market. It, it helps the construction industry, but it kills the bottom end of the, of the established property market. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, uh, we're talking a wee bit there about buy-to-lets, etc. They keep getting a kicking from the government, whether it's stress tests on, on lenders now. Now there's a stress test of 145% at 5% um, to make sure you've got sufficient rental. You've got LBTT, the, the surcharge, 3% surcharge. Um, and then you've got the tax incentives that are getting wiped out by 2017. Mm. Is it a market for somebody to get into? Um, at a time when you're getting 0% in the bank on your money, it looks like a very attractive thing to get into. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has been a very attractive thing to get into. Yeah. And, and the market there can stand, a dog barking, the, um, the market can stand that 3% charge. Mm -hmm. But um, if you take my position, 90% of what we do is, is straight estate agency work, yep. however we do buy your property, someone will the house away by next Thursday, and we would buy it. Mm -hmm. If I've got a 3% charge on a 60 grand property, yep. I've now got an 1800 pound charge coming out of yep. I don't pay that 1800 pound, it comes off it's the value of the, of the, the person selling yes. it. So the person taking the hit on it isn't the buy-to-let person, mm -hmm. it's the person that's selling the property. Again, it's, it's, it's effectively taxing the poorest. Mm -hmm. And I could sit here and, and tell you that 3% tax is killing me kind of thing, killing me at all, because it's just deducted. Yeah. Yes, I'm paying it, mm -hmm. I'm paying it at the expense of the Net. person selling. Yeah. And uh, it's just an opportunistic uh, tax. And I understand why they've done it, but like everything government does, they've done it without thinking it through to the end. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the government, well, let's talk about um, LBTT um, and the change in LBTT. Um, now what's happening is that there's an enormous hole in the, the tax calculations because people are now saying, you know what, I don't want to pay LBTT on a three or £400,000 property. I'd rather just stay where I am get my architect to put a, uh, 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 an alteration on the property and so what's happening is that nobody's moving but what they've done is that the government have calculated well if we increase the LBTT by a certain amount of money this is what we'll get in and nothing's happening so there's an enormous hole in the, in the finances and I just there's a lot of people I speak to say well they're going to have to look at doing something at well, that kind I, of level. I think if you go back pre-2008 the market was, uh, the marketplace was kind of educated into most people were moving every six or seven years, and that, yeah. that was a, um, 
a, well, it was something that continued on before you could remortgage a property, you sold it and you created your, your equity, then you got bought another property mm. and you kept some of it back and you bought a car on a holiday and a new kitchen for your house. Mm. Um, and people get into the way of that. And what 2008 did was exactly what you said, people started to extend rather than move. If you're a first time buyer that bought a two bedroom property, boy meets girl, didn't move, girl got pregnant, didn't move, kid went to school, didn't move, mm. didn't have to. Mm. People batten down the hatches, the market becomes stagnant, nothing moves. Um, but our whole economy seems to be, you know, this, the, we're a one trick pony, the, the, this the, the property Ponzi scheme really that, that, that we've created. Um, I don't know, I get depressed, <laughs> depressed when, I, uh, when I think about it because, I mean, we're a fortunate generation, I'm 49, you're 48, um, we're lucky to have lived through the bit we've made money off property by and large, mm-hmm. as, a, as a generation we have, and yeah. what are kids going to do? How does, how does a kid in London start off now? No, it's just, where do you start? You know, no, you you, you're just thinking, well, I've got to save X amount, and you think, well, X amount, there's no way I could even contemplate trying to get that. So you're just almost thinking, well, I can't live in London, and you have to move out of London, or you're in a life of renting. Well, we are um, economically too London centric in, in a lot of ways. That's what the, uh, the the independence referendum was about in Scotland. It wasn't so much Scotland and England. It was it was how do we how do we get stuff out of London. How do we make Edinburgh a bigger financial centre, taking some of that away from, from London? Mm-hmm. Or how do we spread it out to Leeds or Newcastle or Liverpool or, um, and, and, and spread the wealth? We've got a crazy situation in London now, but one of the biggest exports that the country has is London property. Mm. Um, and Because it's foreign nationals that tend to buy the London property now because people from London can't, can't, can't afford that. No. Um, but the thing is, once you've... <laughs> I think that's through now. Once you've sold it and effectively exported the the property, do you ever get it back? Do you ever get it? Do you ever get it again? Because typically the person, uh-huh. the Russian person that bought it, is selling it to another Russian person. Yeah. So the money's not actually no, it's not coming back again. into the country. Yeah. That may be total crap, Jonathan, because it's the first time I've ever said it, and I'm processing it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, so with the estate agency side of things, um, let's talk a wee bit about about that, tips and tricks as far as selling is concerned. you get any sort of tips that you would say to your, your customers as to you know, what they should be doing in order to try and sell their property? For the buy-to-let market or for property Just in general? Property in general. Well, I mean, obviously the, the market is now broken down into to, to different segments. Um, on, on the buy-to-let market, your rental yield has to to stack up. You mm. have to be, well, you have to be on eight, nine, ten percent. Yeah. And so that is buying in, in the right location, whether it's close to a university, to a school. It can be, but I mean, the the, the wrong location tends to give you the bigger rental yield. Um, so, but it'll give you the most amount of hassle. Mm-hmm. So if you buy something in, you know, Wishaw, you might get fifteen percent on your rental. You'll go to Glasgow, um, but it's going to be a DSS tenant, and it's going to give you all sorts of hassle. And mm-hmm. if you've got a great number of properties, you can spread the risk. Yeah, and and these become good investments. If it was somebody like you or me buying a property, 
you want it as close to the blue bit of the Monopoly board as you can get, mm -hmm. as high a rental yield as you can get. Mm. But you're going to suffer on the rental yield, but you're probably going to gain on the capital. On the capital. I think, do you think as an investor you've really got to make your mark as to whether or not you want that capital or a yield as far as the, the rental's concerned? I mean, clearly, if you can get both, that's absolutely fantastic. But do you think, in your portfolio, is that more in the blue, or is it more in the brown, or is it? I, I don't really have a portfolio. I don't. I don't rent anything out uh, anymore, um, just because I don't have the time to, to deal with uh -huh, it. Uh -huh. um, typically, if I buy a property, um, it, it'll be bought to be to be sold on. Right. And it's uh, basically I mean, we're not looking to make fortunes off it. Mm -hmm. If you've got property to sell. If you want me to sell it for you, I'll make money off you. If you want me to buy it from you, I'll make money off you just, just the same. Yeah. Um, but again, the you know one of the rules that's there on the, the mortgage lending, if I buy a property, I've got to keep it for six months mm. before the next person can get a mortgage mm -hmm, on it. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand why that legislation is there, um, because of mortgage fraud yeah, in, in, yeah. in, in the kind of previous lives. But if I have to build in money to have a property for six months before I can sell it on, again, who's going to suffer for no, that because I'm building it? Yeah. Well, it's the end buyer, it's because I'm buying it off. Yeah, it's of. not going to be you. No. But, it, but it's part of that problem that's, that we have in society where, where in actual fact the poor person at the bottom of the of the chain is, is really the person that's paying it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why we touched on the, the, the kind of revolt or the, the revolution um, that, that, that you're seeing just now. Um, it's no different to, to any other revolution in history. When the rich get so rich, mm -hmm. you know, somewhere down the line, the 99.9% .9 will realise that the 0.1% have got all the money and it becomes the easiest thing in the world to take it off them. And if you see that the, um, the, the stuff that's starting to build now, the resentment against the, the, the big businessman, like, like Philip Green, for instance, the, and, and the kind of contempt and arrogance that's shown by by him mm -hmm. or the Rupert Murdoch thing um, people notice these things they don't know what it means they don't know what Panama means they don't know what tax havens mean but they can smell a stink and, yeah. and really that's that's all it takes is mm -hmm. for, um, and, and until now we've had a political system that you're familiar with the, with the old adage of 93% of the the wealth is only seven percent of the population, and the big skillful thing with our politics is being able to make the ninety-three percent believe that they're part of the seven percent. So, if you come from the southeast of England, um, because you're in the wealthy uh, property area in the, you know, the city of London, you, then you assume that you're part of that lucky seven percent. But mm -hmm. you're not, because mm -hmm. you're, 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 all your overheads have, have gone up. In actual fact, you're the person that's paying the tax. Yeah, because the rich people. The rich people don't pay the, uh, the same levels of tax. The poor people aren't paying tax. It's the big lump in the middle that has to finance everybody. Um, and I, I, I think I think we're in very interesting times just now. I'm, 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 I'm interested in this whole Jeremy Corbyn thing that's, that's going on just now mm -hmm. because it's very similar to the uh, to the SNP thing in Scotland, which kind of kicked it all off very similar to the Bernie Sanders thing in, in the States. It doesn't really matter how much flack he put out on it. It seems to get more popular. Mm -hmm. he, he seems to have a lot of grassroots support of 
but he just doesn't seem to be able to get anybody who's going to be able to work with him. That, and surely that must be an enormous concern for him and the people that, that are backing him. Well, yeah, but you could argue that the uh, that Tony Blair changed the whole Labour Party around him to being, um, uh, I don't Tory light is the, the expression that gets used mm-hmm. quite a lot. I mean, the Labour Party was there to represent the poorer working class end of society. And it's got a very difficult um, balancing act to do just now. How, how do you, how do you, if you're a Labour politician, how do you serve the southeast of England whilst at the same time looking after the people in Liverpool mm-hmm. or Glasgow or, or yeah. Newcastle? It's an almost impossible Impossible thing. to get that policy that's going to please everybody. So you probably need to have a situation where the Labour Party probably does need to split into a, a Labour Party South and a Labour Party North that comes together in coalition, uh, which seemed to me the, the, the obvious way to do it. Yeah. But they have That's an incredibly difficult thing well, to achieve. Well, as, as, you're, as you're witnessing. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it is a... Uh, I, the people that I that I speak to, and I'm, I'm in these kind of council estates quite a lot, and, mm-hmm. and the support there is uh, massive. Yeah. But when you go to the, the mass media, there, there's no... I can't remember last time I saw a commentator really um, supporting Jeremy Corbyn. Mm-hmm. I'm not touting Jeremy Corbyn uh, policies here, because, mm-hmm. to be honest, I've not really heard the policy yet. But I think you are, you are now seeing something starting to change. You know, everything's starting to creak and grow in a little bit. And, yeah. and if they don't alter it skillfully you'll have a massive crack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, you know, your, your French Revolution was about, you know, it's a, um, you know, I don't know my history that well, but I'd lay odds if you went back to the Second World War, and why did the persecution of the Jews happen? Because there were the people with the money, you know, and Germany was coming through, you know, a, a period of bankruptcy, of reparation after the First World mm-hmm. War, and, and whatnot, and it becomes the easiest thing in the world to say, I know a way to sort this, get the rich. Yeah. Um, Moving on to, I, I guess, the legal system, and just wanted to have a quick chat to you about what you felt about the legal system and the buying and selling process, and and is that something that you just tear your hair out every time you, you have to buy a property or sell a property, or, or do you think that what we've got is it works fine well, closing date system, offers over, etc. Could you see anything that... that it could be improved by, or is it just something that works pretty well and and the status quo is okay? Um, I swear I upset everybody in this agency. We're all bit there. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> pre pre two thousand and eight, and you, you'll have seen this through the the, the GSPC mm-hmm. site. I mean, every lawyer in the country was was selling property and thought they were a property expert. Yeah, they weren't because property sold itself. Or the receptionist did. It, well, exactly. Um, but lawyers being that, that slightly superior breed, that they, I mean, I know they teach you all this at university how to be superior. Um, <laughs> just just assume <laughs> that they're better than you know the, the, the mainstream estate agent. But at that particular time, anybody can sell property. You could put a sign yourself on the window and it would sell because every property was a uh, an, an appreciating asset. It didn't matter what you had, where you had it, everything was appreciating. Yeah, you couldn't lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, the property estate agency market was populated by pretty blonde girls who were picked to look good in the shop window who knew nothing about property. 
Then the market changes in 2008, and all of a sudden you do need to understand how the monopoly board works, mm-hmm. and you need to understand about rental yields and political trends and economics and national debts and the value of the pound and inflation and Bank of England rates. And, um, You've got a job to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, and in a lot of ways, you saw the rise of companies like ours and companies that Ross has got. You know, you understand it very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are guys that are kind of running their own business, that, that, that are, they're taking their property knowledge into the... And can move quickly. Exactly. Yeah. And they can adjust and they can they can change tack. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the state agency was, was slick salesman. It was the guy who was a car salesman yesterday came, became a property valuer. It's his job to get a signature on a bit of paper and promise you the earth. And then it's somebody else's job to actually make that promise turn into reality. Mm-hmm. So you, you bring the house on £100,000, you end up selling it at seventy. If you want to sell a property quickly, you have to be able to make somebody understand why the £100,000 house is actually worth £70,000. Yeah. Uh, nobody's paying home report value if the market's going down the way, because why would you pay hundred grand for a property today that you think is going to be worth seventy grand tomorrow? So everybody works on a, a, a kind of offers-under type, type way. But you also have to understand the, the kind of golden rules of, of estate agency, that you can't sell a property without a viewer. So how do you get that viewer? Mm-hmm. You stick on a hundred grand, you don't get a viewer. You stick it on it offers over a pound, you get a queue and execution, which is essentially the way an auction uh, works. And you know, you know, an auction is is really no different to a closing day. Uh, property. Well, in, in many respects, that it's it's more transparent exactly. because you know who you're competing against. Yes. There's no envelope, and you you get more than one chance. You can say, well, listen, that's my budget, and then you can walk out the room after that. Yeah. Whereas with a closing date, you could have might might have been able to go an extra five. Well. Again, it's it's totally dependent on the area. You won't get a closing date on a, a an ex council property in you know Rutherland. Just just won't happen. But if you happen to have a bit of prime property, everybody wants to buy it. Mm-hmm. I, I had one on. Uh, I had two properties come on last week um, with one client, um, a four bedroom detached house in Kirkintilloch, right, and a two bedroom flat in Govan Hill. They were both going on below market value. In right. the first hour of going on the market, the Kirk and Tillard property had 26 viewings. Wow. Not a phone call on the Govan Hill one. Mm-hmm. So desirable property where people want to live, there's a, there's a total dearth of properties on the market for exactly the reasons that you said earlier. People are batting down the hatches and are not moving. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other side, where it's trade buyers only, the rental year was not good enough on that yet. No, so it's going to sit. Yeah. And it's going to sit until... There's somebody who's prepared to pay that because it works for them as far as a rental yield is concerned. And nobody's going to buy that property unless it's a buy-to-let investor because your punter's not going to be able to get a mortgage. Yeah. It comes a straight arithmetic equation for the... So the whole point about the LBTT, or one of the reasons why the LBTT surcharge was brought in, was to release properties so that first-time buyers could buy them. But that's yeah. not a market that a first-time buyer either wants to get in at the moment because they've been trained to buy a new build and, and jump three three ladders up, the, the three yep. rungs up the ladder. Um, plus, they're going to struggle to get a mortgage because lenders are not prepared to lend at that yeah, bottom level. It's easy to be smart after the event. But if you don't get 
the first time buyer wanting to buy that Govan Hill property. You've, you've screwed the whole market. And you, you, you said the, the, the right expression there. You, you've, um, they've now become educated that they can have this fancy property. Therefore, they don't want to go back to that. I mean, no. How you go back, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, the, uh, but the property tax, the 3% property tax on the properties, um, that's the government reacting to the fact that the only people that can buy these properties are trade people. But had they got the hundred percent mortgages in place, they to wouldn't start need with, to do that. that exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, what scares you? Um, I am a kind of strange breed of person. Everything scares me. My my whole life has been. Um, based around fear and um, and knots in my stomach, and um, that, that's what drives me as I'm getting older. Um, I've got a little bit less um, terror in my tummy. Now, if you know Davy Hutton, and I'm looking at Davy Hutton here, and he, he's got a cut-off um, shirt. Um, he's got a, a earrings from hang from both ears. He's got a Kangol leather cap on. I can't understand that anything would fear the man, but. Is that bravado? Yeah, it's um, it's front. Um, my, I went to Johnson High. Um, my young brother's seven years younger than me. Went to Glasgow mm-hmm. High, um, and the, the uh, this isn't an advert for private schools, but the confidence that he came out with, I never had. Um, and I remember him saying to me, when you go into a room full of people that don't know you, Davey, and to get them to know you, you, you go into a song and dance routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you perform. Yes, yes, yes. He said, I walk into a room and I think, why would these people not want to speak to me? And it's a completely different... Mindset. Yeah. Um, uh, the reason probably that I'm not as scared of things now is you go into the front that you that you portray. Mm-hmm. Behind every extrovert, there's an introvert. Um, and I'm still basically the same shy boy that, that I was at school nobody ever sees the bit of me standing outside with your head on the wall kind of going one, two, three and go uh-huh. um, but I'll lay you on every person you meet in your life that's got that extrovert exterior will, will have that will have that other side yep. um, I remember 12 years old standing waiting for the school bus in the snow and uh, the Russians had invaded Afghanistan and I remember clear as day being petrified about the Third World War coming and, you know, would this still be going when I was 16 and able to go to war? And uh-huh. all the things that 12-year-old boys shouldn't be worrying about. Yes, uh-huh. Um, but, but that was me and it's what, it's what drives me and it's what, what motivates me to get up in the morning. What scares me um, politically now is the, is the size of the, the, the debt that we carry and how we... Uh, I mean, when people talk about... We all know the story about how we came hours from the, or minutes from the, the Royal Bank of Scotland going bust or the banks and, and en masse going, mm-hmm, going bust. Mm-hmm. We've all heard the stories about what happens had they gone bust, that your cash line machine wouldn't have worked in the, in the hole in the wall and that your utility companies would have collapsed and would have gone back to the Stone Age very quickly, yeah. working the fields. The bit that people don't understand is that we didn't find a magic wand, we didn't find a magic solution. We just at the last minute chose a different way of doing it. Instead of having a total collapse, we decided to accept the fact that there's going to be a collapse that will be spread out over a 30-year period. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the talk just now about you know the recessions and recoveries, and we're basically on a slippery slope of gradual decline mm-hmm. until effectively our middle classes going down the way match the Chinese middle classes coming up the way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it's this, it has to get to the same bottom point 
So you're looking at no growth for the, you know, the next 20 years, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It's quite scary. Quite scary. It's, it's really scary. Um, but you have to actually look at the uh, at the amounts of debt that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Go back to that thing that we started off with: three hundred years to build up five hundred billion, and three years to build up another six hundred yeah. billion. It's crazy. Um, you're talking three years there. You've talked to me about what motivates you. What about goals? Where do you see yourself in five years? Let's say we were talking here in surface on Great Western Road um, and five years hence what are your goals? Um, it's <laughs> I've said this many times to people when I was I don't know a person in the, when I was 17 I knew exactly what I wanted to do mm -hmm. I wanted to have a castle and I wanted to own a pub and run with the bills in Pamplona and rough down the Zambezi River and you know that kind bucket, uh, bucket list stuff yeah, yeah. But, but before bucket lists were, were trendy <laughs> um, and I really had got to a point of I'd done everything on my bucket list right. I'd, I'd just done one thing a year kind of thing and, and, when, when and did you set yourself up I'm very interested in sort of goal setting and did you write these goals down or did you write those down or were they just in your head and you just thought they were fear driven all of them were fear driven uh -huh. Um, but you knew specifically what you wanted to do, or did they flit in and out? They, 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 they flitted in and out. I was I had an imagination uh -huh. um, and an ambition. And it's funny. I look back now and, and, and tell this story about how when I was seventeen, I had my, my bucket list. It wasn't it wasn't as simple as that. I just had ideas in my head. Yeah. Um, when I was twenty one, I tried to buy a castle in Lochunnock. It was an old ruined place that we used to play in as kids mm -hmm. and it was owned by a um, Professor McDowell in Canada and I wrote to him saying when he gives that um, and at the time the naivety of youth you know you could build a, a barrack box for 40 grand so why can we not just repair that castle up for 40 grand Yes. so uh, what in effect that did was plant a seed in my head now obviously Professor McDowell very politely wrote back and said bugger off Davy <laughs> uh, don't be a clown but I used to tell the story in jokey terms. Yeah. And then one day, after I had the pub, somebody walked into the pub with an Observer newspaper and said, where's your castle? And it was a castle in West Cobain going to auction. Um, so the seed that you planted mm. 20 years previous... It stays there. Yeah, and it grows when the sun shines on it one day. And that's, that's the kind of lesson. It's the, it's the importance of dreams for kids. The more things you dream about, the more seeds you plant in your mm -hmm. head. And then one day, somebody comes in... You know, then shines the sun on the seed, and your first step is forward and not backwards. Yes, very rarely, I think, in any goal, they, they talk about goal setting. Um, you should be writing down your goal, and then it's a process to get to that goal. So, very much from your castle, it was you're never going to go from step one to buying the castle, you've got to go through a bit of a journey. And one part of that journey was Professor McDonald saying, McDowell saying, Get noted, we're not selling yeah, that, that to that you. Was, that was the first part, uh -huh. and then the, you know, the second part of it is, uh, is, is taking the story and making it into a, a funny real life story that you tell to various people. And then so, it's still in your head, exactly. yeah. And uh, you know, there's other things that were, I mean, I had a had a picture on my wall of a, a Rolls Royce Coronation when I was a kid. Right. And uh, one day I'm going to have a Rolls Royce type thing was, uh -huh, was, uh -huh. was in my head. And then 2008, I was actually sitting in the office with Ross Arthur and I saw a picture of the very same model of a Rolls Royce, All a right. Trudeau Coupe um, Rolls Royce Coronation. 
uh, and I was telling Ross the story, but this is one of the things that I thought about as a kid. Mm -hmm. And in telling the story, it then becomes the next thing I know, I'm, I'm on a plane going to Brighton to see. To, You're almost forced kid. in to take you to Pretty the next much. step. But it's part of the thing. The reason I told him the story in the first place when I saw the car is because secretly you kind of want to be, yeah, yeah. you want to be pushed uh -huh. down that. You need something that challenges and yes. says, why, why don't you do it? Uh -huh. So I didn't want a Rolls Royce particularly at that time. I didn't need it and I, I, I sure as hell couldn't afford it. Um, but I was bright enough to know that the, by buying the Rolls Royce at 25 grand or whatever it was, um, that it was unlikely to be going down the way in classic car it's not like driving a car out the showroom and, and, and you've lost five grand since you're yeah. sitting it if the world's in turmoil as it, as it was starting to be in 2008 um, stock markets collapse mm -hmm. and, and tangible things increase gold increases silver yeah. increases yeah. classic cars increase art increases mm -hmm. so it, it was more for me about being able to say to my son who at that time would be two. Everything I wanted to do when I was 17, I did it. Yeah. And there's there's you know the Tangible last one of us in, in, yeah. in the in the in the garage. Now that 25 grand car is probably worth 55 grand now. That wasn't to know that at the time. But if it was still worth 25 grand, that hadn't cost me anything. No. Um, you know, and you've created a story with your with your son there to realise that your your dreams and goals can come true um, if you're you're that way inclined to achieve them, which is an enormous thing to be it, able to say to your child. It's funny. I was I was doing a I was doing a speech in Glasgow one night, and I was telling that specific story about the things I wanted to do when I was seventeen, mm -hmm. and somebody from the crowd had said, put their hand up and said, "Is there anything on your list that you've not done?" I said, the only thing I can remember really was um, I wanted to fly in a Spitfire. Right. But as you can look into it more and you get older and wiser and you find that you can't actually fly in a Spitfire because it's a warplane that doesn't conform to health and safety. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you can't buy a, a joyride in it. And then as part of that speech, I'd said, um, mind you, I, I saw this thing down south about a company that's bought a two-seater Spitfire and they've, they've done it up. I think there's only three of them in the world or something. Mm -hmm. And the way they're getting around the legislation is they'll teach you to be a Spitfire pilot. So it becomes a training course rather than a joyride. Right, right. But to become a Spitfire pilot, you have to first of all be a pilot. So you then start to look at, well, how quickly can I get a pilot's license? How much does that cost? And you find out you can do it in two and a half weeks in the States, mm -hmm. intensive, and it'll cost you eight and a half grand. And then on top of that, eight and a half grand, there's another three and a half grand for your Spitfire training, where they teach you in a... Um, I think it's in a, a Tiger Moth biplane. Right. Or sort of with camo or something like that. And then you go from that to a Mustang and a Mustang to, to a Spitfire. So it's quite the journey. I'm just thinking through my Airfix models there. Yeah, that's exactly the way I think of it. <laughs> the, um, but that's 12 grand. 12 grand is the price of your midlife crisis Harley Davidson. Uh -huh. And you've got a pilot's license. And you're a Spitfire pilot. And nobody's ever going to meet another yes, Spitfire it's pilot. It's like the classic car that's in the garage and it's accruing money. It's not. In the big scheme of things, if you look at it, you can look at it and say that 12 grand um, is, is money that you've thrown away. 
but it's not because you've increased all your your, your expectations. From my point of view, because of these speeches that I'm doing in Glasgow, because I'm preaching to people the kind of be all you can be and Mm. uh, if you can dream it, do it type Uh thing, Uh there's probably a case for me being able to make that whole thing tax deductible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so your twelve grand actually becomes eight grand. T- t- yeah, time yeah, thing. part of your yeah. expenses. So, at the at the end of that spiel, I was talking out loud when I was doing it because I hadn't actually processed it in my head. And the guy said, "So why have you not done it then?" And it remained. And that was probably two, three years ago. That was, and it remains the thing in my in my list. It was the challenge uh-huh. that said, "So why have uh-huh. you not done it?" And I, um, and I felt about six inches tall. Yeah. Because I haven't done it. And the truth of the matter is, right now, I don't have the time to do it. But it's still there. It's like one of these things that, that's still there. And, and when the time comes, you'll, you'll, if it's really important to you and the time comes, you'll, you'll do it. You'll, you'll go to America and you'll do the intensive. Yeah, but it's not. Yes, it's just the way that I've, I've structured my business now that everything kind of revolves around about me and the property stuff. I mean, I'm the one that goes out to see mm-hmm. the property, I'm the one that goes out to discuss the particular situations with the people until I can structure that business differently where yes. it, can, it can do without me for uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, a month period then and, and, and that's one of the failings in what I do I have a, I have a property business that's based around about me Do you struggle with delegation? Um, no, I don't think so no. um, I I've always I mean, been clearly your brand is very much Davy Hutton and um, on the radio with your quick sale stuff and, and I can understand why it's probably important for the business moving forward that the brand is, is so important but that becomes a bit of a difficulty in actually growing the brand because ultimately you're going to get pulled from pillar to post because people want a p- piece of you yeah but it's you know when we had the pub uh-huh. The, the pub was a very successful pub, but it was based around my personality. Yeah, and I actually won it. I, you know, and made a lot of noise when I when I was there and pulled pints and shouted and bawled and uh-huh. um, and everybody thought I did all the work, but, but I don't. You know, everybody thinks because of the radio advert that Davy Hutton does all the quick sale work and uh-huh. Helen does all the work in the, in, in the office. Yeah, but. When we started off at first, you know, I've already spoken about how the initial plan was you'd go to the banks and they would give you the repossessions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. doesn't actually happen like that. Then the GSPC um, thing didn't pan out the way no. the way that I would like it to pan out. And then you had to grow organically. Then well, you, you're evolving, and yeah. that's really the secret of a business. It's how you it's how you evolve and adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ross and I went our own separate ways, and we evolve in completely different areas. Mine is based round about the. You know the the radio media razzmatazz, and Ross is based around about the auction in Scotland type yeah. thing, where yeah. the actual property is given to them for for the auction from a bigger franchise said uh, situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't really, I don't really have a great ambition, Jonathan, to, to to build an empire. Um, I, I'm, I've done that. I've been there, mm-hmm. kind of ran the bigger business and slept with a pad at the same of the bed and wrote things <laughs> when I woke up in the middle of the night. Uh-huh. I have no, no desire to no. go back there. What about your public speaking? You're, you're clearly keen to maybe expand that. And what about mentoring? Um, you do done, any mentoring? I've done a bit of it. Um, I was involved in the, the pilot programme for Enterprise going through the, uh, the education system. Mm-hmm. Um, we did the, the pilot program down in oh, Largs Kilburn many, right. many moons ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like that side of it. I like being able to um, t- 
take a primary school kid and pointing them in a direction. It's and great, no, that, yeah. Well, there was one the story I tell all the time about one wee kid in primary seven not buying in um, to the to the schoolwork. Mm-hmm, he was mm-hmm. sitting in the back as I was talking. Yeah. Um, and I picked him out. I said, what's your name, mate? And it's funny, you, you remember names. Robbie Scarf, his name was, came from Lockwinnock, um, which is the village that I, I now stay in. Yeah. Um, what do you want to be, Robbie? don't know. What do I do when you leave school? I don't know. Well, everybody's listening, you've got the whole audience, come on, what do you want to do? <laughs> and and to be cheeky, he said, uh, want to be, I want to walk on the moon. And if he'd been allowed to, he'd have said, I want to walk on the moon, you yeah, dick. Right, how are you going to do it? I don't know. What would you need to be to walk on the moon? He said, an astronaut. What do you need to be to be an astronaut? Fighter pilot. And at this stage, I know I'm in a competition with a 10-year-old kid. And if, mm-hmm. I, if I lose it, my, my credibility is shot. going to be a fighter pilot. How are you going to be a fighter pilot? I'll become a pilot. How are you going to become a pilot? I'll join the Air Force. How do you join the Air Force? He said, I don't know. I'll tell you how you join the Air Force. You get a degree. And to get a degree, you need to pass your hires. To pass your hires, you need to pass your standard grades. To get your standard grades, you need to pick your subjects. Mm-hmm. Next year, you go to the big school. The year after that, you pick your subjects. And if you pick the wrong ones, you can't walk on them in. But as we sit here right now... There's only one of us can walk on the moon, Robbie, and it's not me. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the kid has just wow. bought into the... Yeah, yeah. Now, that was... Robbie, I think, is now 19, and I only know that because he chapped my door about a year ago. <laughs> right. Asking if he could come work the, the summer. All right. Uh-huh. Now, as it turned out, I didn't have a place for him, but he went away abroad and, and probably learned a much bigger life lesson. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the point is that that kid's life direction changed not not because of me because anybody could have made that, that speed but mm-hmm. a good teacher will always be able to, Absolutely. Uh, to change a kid's yeah. direction there's, there's nothing better in, in, in taking that kid and then just seeing them, them flourish um, I do a bit of coaching down at the, the cricket club mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, I take the under 13s and, and they're at an age where they've got th- the three sort of age groups you've got under 11s, under 13s and under 15s um, and I decided to go for the under-13s because the under-10s was just uh, babysitting. Yeah. And by the time they got 15, they probably thought they knew everything about it. But at 13, you've got that opportunity to see the ones who can play, but more importantly, see the ones who have got the desire um, and then just feed them a couple of pointers here and there and put them on the right track. Um, and if they've got somebody who they'll, they'll listen to um, and who's prepared to take time every Monday and Friday whenever we coached, then you see a massive improvement. You do, and, and, and you know, I don't want to be a, um, a spokesman for private education because I've got uh, kind of strong views on both sides of the fence on that left and right. Um, what private schools tend to be able to do is to evolve kids. Um, they, they, they can throw lots of things at kids, find out what they're good at, find mm-hmm. out what motivates them, find out what makes them tick, and send them uh, in a different direction. It's like in, in the uh, in the state school system, the kid that was the good at football very seldom bought into the to the whole educational system because he was going to you know, off to play for Rangers or Celtic and be a footballer. That's I don't need to do that kind of. Oh, yeah. But if you can say to them you're probably not going to be a footballer because you've got no control over how you grow up. You've got no control over the height you're going to be or how quick you're going mm. to be. But maybe you're going to be the guy that makes football boots. 
or maybe you're a physiotherapist, or maybe you'll be, you know, making sports shots or, or, or running a sports shop, mm-hmm. or, you know, or maybe you'll be the guy that's that owns the football club. You know, David Beckham, ninety percent of his money is made out with football. The guy has to know how a balance sheet works, and he has mm. to know how a, an invoice works, and how you know how that banking system works. Can you? Mm-hmm. Um, if you can say to the kid that plays football, you can do all these things because you're into football. Then he's buying into the to the education system, and yeah. that's yeah. that's what I think the private education system does very well. It has the time to be able to spend with with the kids and and. Um, evolve them whereas in a lot of areas particularly the, the poorer areas in, in the state system if you've got a teacher who has to in a lot of ways some of them at the bottom end of, of the class will be fighting against parents all the time that parents will be almost counter teaching to what the to what the teacher's teaching mm-hmm. there's some kids at, at the at the poorer end of society where the teacher's responsible for making sure that kid eats that mm-hmm. day mm-hmm. and that's a completely different skill set yeah. it's it's massively important I don't believe for a second that the teaching standard is better in in, in private to to state that they're just different but they're directions. concentrating on teaching whereas there's, yeah. there's so many other things that require to be done yeah so in the, in the in the state system you tend to the kid that's very bright tends to do quite well and the kid that's not very bright tends to get the help mm-hmm. and the big bit in the middle is just encouraged to sail through because that proportionally is about the least amount of time yeah. spent on yeah. it. Whereas it's the, the exact opposite in the in the kind of private education system, I think, where the the bit in the middle and the, you know, the class sizes are, are, are small enough that they, they get the teaching time to, to find out what they're good at. Okay. Okay. So we've we've been talking your best part of an hour Chewed a fair amount of fat there from property. Most of this is crap. (laughs) (laughs) On my part, not on yours. Um, And so we'll just walk you to the exit. Let's um, talk about your social media. Where can people find you? Um, You'll find me on Facebook, Cooksale Property. Um, You'll find me all over the radio on the guy with the annoying voice. Um, Some of you probably don't know who I am, but if I go, sold, most of you will know what that means. And I didn't ask him to do that. Listen, Davey, it's been great meeting you again, and we'll catch up with you soon. No problem. Cheers. Thank you very much. Did you enjoy that? It's good, wasn't it? He really does. He's just so interesting, Davey Hutton. I've met him on a number of occasions, and I've, I've had various chats with him over the years, and you know what? He's always coming up with thought-provoking stuff. And for all his bluff and bluster and his pirate costumes, you know what? He knows a thing or two. That's Davy Hutton. I tell you, you know what, what we're going to do next week is that next week we're going to go back to uh, me talking about the, the law and property. And we're going to have a chat about new builds. I know a lot of you out there are very keen on the new build market. And what we're going to do is we're going to have a discussion about the pros and cons of buying for a new build. So that's for next week. And then the following week, we'll revert back to our interview show. I'm lining up Ian McCall. Um, some of you who follow the round ball will know Ian McCall. He's the former Park Thistle manager and is current incumbent in the post down at Air United, managing the team there. I think the week before they had a good result against Hibs. So we've got him on and uh, he'll, be, he'll be some good value, I'm absolutely sure. 
in the Williams household um, just back this afternoon from Edinburgh where number two was in action on the hockey pitch. Uh, she was invited along to I think a Scottish schools trial which is, is great for her um, under 16s. Any of those of you out there who have played in trial games you'll know the whole thing's a bit of a lottery and, and my view very much is that the team's probably already picked but it was a great experience to go over there and uh, I think she she did pretty well I have to say I don't think there can be any complaints um, I think she will certainly be thinking that you know she's done as best as she can so that's fantastic to see how she gets on in the coming weeks Chauffeuring, well, we're back in the taxi. Taxi Williams has uh, been ferrying everybody around and uh, next week we're back to hockey duty. So we've got the fixture, full fixture list next week. So it looks as if we're going to be up to our eyes in the chauffeuring nonsense. Remember the blogs. Uh, just done a blog there. We're trying to get the blogs out on a weekly basis. And this week's blog is all about insurance and what kinds of insurance that you actually need to take out when you're buying a property. So that's on the blog. The blog's on the website, Podcast. Have a look at that. As I say, we do weekly blogs that come out. You can get in touch with us through the emails. Get in touch with me at jonathanwilliams at begleybrown.co.uk. We're on the Twitter, jwilliams underscore bb. We're also on the Facebook, just type into the search bar, the Bricks and Mortar podcast, and we'll come up there and you get a link into the website. I'm going to sign off now. I'm going to go and contact Ian McCall, just get another interview there in the can, and we'll catch you next week. You've been listening to the Bricks and Mortar podcast, taking a sideways look at property.